Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, I, um, I kind of want to linger over what we just, not only what we was just read, but what we just said. This is the Word of God. And so, Lord, we um, first of all praise you and thank you that you speak, um, that you speak to us through your Word and that you attend that Word by your Holy Spirit, uh, whose ministry it is to apply it to our hearts in such a way that Christ would be formed in us. Um, Lord, either that, he would, that we would grow as Christians more and more like Him, uh, or, Lord, that we would receive Him for the first time today. And so, Lord, You're sufficient for all of that. Would you, I pray that You would um, attend to this sermon, uh, Lord, that You would use it to that end, that You would get glory, uh, that it would work to the good of this fellowship here, and indeed, the good, to the good of our city and to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this last summer, a movie came out. You've probably heard about it. There's been a lot of Oscar buzz. It's called The Minions, The Rise of Gru. And it's a movie uh, about a robbery. And, you know, spoiler alert, uh, it ends with the title character, Gru, and his, his accomplice, uh, a character called Wild Knuckles, uh, getting away with a robbery and riding off into the sunset at the end of the movie. But the Chinese government didn't like the ending, uh, so they changed it. Uh, they uh, got some software and slapped on an ending so that their version ended with Wild Knuckles not riding off into the sunset, but getting 20 years in prison, and Gru returning to his family uh, where he attains great success as a father to his three daughters. Now. You know, not all of us like the stories that are put in front of us. <laughs> uh, not all of us like our own stories. And, you know, a lot of us would like, you know, to be able to do just this, to, to get a little software and to rewrite them. Uh, and this morning we're getting into a story, into a part of Jesus' story that, that a lot of people just as soon rewrite, including, you know, his own disciples. Uh, he has finally made his way into Jerusalem, and he's talked a lot about this, um, uh, about what will happen to him in this city, that he'll be condemned, he'll be handed over, he'll be uh, raised again three days later. And, and that, that entry, that story that he has told his disciples of is not only highly anticipated, it has been strongly, fiercely resisted. It's a story that, you know, those around him would, would like to rewrite. You know, it's commonly called the triumphal entry, but as we just read, we've got to see that Jesus doesn't make just one entry, he actually makes two. Uh, one into the city and another into its center, uh, to the temple. He enters the temple. And in the temple, we need to understand is this, it's not just one building, it's a complex. Uh, it's a complex of buildings and areas, and the area that Jesus has walked into is the largest part of the temple complex. This was the place where temple business was carried out where you could purchase anything from a pigeon to a sheep to make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And because people come from all over, from the Jewish diaspora, they come with, you know, uh, all kinds of different currency. So there's currency exchanges there as well so that you could buy that pigeon or that sheep. And since it was Passover time, there was never a busier time than right now. In fact, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus uh, recorded that there was one Passover week uh, in which over a quarter million lambs were sacrificed at the temple. 
Um, so, you know, Jesus is walking into a hybrid of the Houston Stock Show and Rodeo and a Wall Street t- trading pit. That's what it's like. And, and, you know, this part of the temple had a name, and it wasn't the currency exchange. It wasn't the sacrificial anim- animal market. It was called the Court of the Nations or the Court of the Gentiles. Now, I just want to let that sink in for a second. Um, no analogy is perfect, but imagine you're on a family road trip and you're driving down the highway and you see a sign, got the kids in the back, they're getting restless, and you see a sign that says Children's Museum, next exit. So you pull off the highway, you make your way to the building, outside the building there's a sign that says Children's Museum, and then you enter the place and you walk into a combination of a casino and a cannabis dispensary. And you, know, you would think, well, it appears what we've got here is a misnomer. It's called the Children's Museum, but this does not look like a a place for children. And in the same way, you know, this place that Jesus has stepped into is called the Court of the Nations, the Court of the Gentiles, but it doesn't look like a place for the nations, and it doesn't look like a place for the Gentiles. And that's a big deal, because God's intent was for this part of the temple complex to be the place not only where non-Jews were allowed to go, but where they were urged to come. Um, No other part of the temple had as much square footage dedicated to it as this place did. Because God's design is that it would be busy, of course, but busy not with money changers and, you know, uh, people selling livestock, but with non-believers gathering in the house of God to come and hear and reflect and interact with God's people so that they too would become worshipers of the one true God who made them and is calling them to himself as the God of the nations. And yet, you know, every square foot of it is not being used for the nations. It's being used for this one nation. And Jesus reacts to this with outrage. He, he, like a rock star would treat their hotel suite, He's knocking over tables. He's throwing chairs around. He's kicking over animal cages. And it, you know, and it looks like, you know, at long last, after Jesus has put up with so much, finally he loses it. Except that's not how Mark puts it. Mark doesn't say that Jesus is trashing the place. Mark says that Jesus is teaching in the place. So Jesus goes to God's word. And he quotes in what he says, he draws from two passages of the Bible. The first one is from Isaiah 56, 7, which is, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. He's reminding them, he's teaching about God's intention for this place, that that the intention is not only not being carried out, but it's quite the opposite. No outsider would ever venture into this place. No outsider would even understand it. What Gentile out there would would want to walk into a place that's, you know, to, to access currency exchange services to procure a sacrificial animal for a religion of which they are not a part. You know, now, in one sense, Jesus' cleansing of the, of the temple, his actions here seem really radical, but in fact, they're in line with Scripture. Um, among the last things said in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, is that the Lord would show up at the temple, that he would appear suddenly like a refiner's fire, purifying it. Handel's Messiah, right? 
but the impulse to write our own story is very strong. So the biblical expectation was at odds with the popular expectation. And there was a popular expectation. Uh, The popular expectation is that the Messiah would show up and purify the temple, but purify it by kicking the foreigners out. But here's Jesus, you know, instead of clearing the temple of Gentiles, he's clearing it for Gentiles. He's purifying it. He is restoring it to what God intends for it to be. And in fact, his, his actions represent You know, I think something, even bigger things going on. In verse 11, where we started off our reading, Mark tells us that Jesus went into the temple and looked around, which, you know, may not seem like a big deal until we understand that his looking around is not Jesus being the tourist. Jesus doesn't show up to look around in that way. It's more like a homeowner returning to their home after a long trip, looking around at the place as his. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah, saying the temple is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, you know, he's he's talking about his house. And and I'm going to develop this idea a little further, but in fact, I want to tell you, he's talking about himself. You see, he's, he's not, in other words, just doing temple reform, providing a little, you know, biblical backing for his behavior. He is proclaiming himself as the one to whom the temple points. He is the substance, and the temple is the shadow that's cast by him, if you could put it that way. That's the way the writer of Hebrews puts it. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, so, so, so let's look at the second thing he quotes in his answer, the second passage. He quotes from Jeremiah, and he says, you know, the temple has become a den of robbers. Now, at first, when you hear that, you think, well, Jesus is upset that they're doing commerce in the temple, um, you know, and that's what makes it a den of robbers, but in fact... You know, that is problematic, but the Jeremiah passage isn't so much about, you know, the commission of a crime as much as it is about conceiving of a crime. A robber's den isn't where the crime takes place, it's the hideout. You know, the robber's den is the place where the robbers gather and plan the robbery. You know, it's, it's also the place that after the robbery has been pulled off, they run back to hoping they've gotten away with their crimes, right? That's a robber's den. And Jesus is saying that's what the temple has become. It has become like a staging ground where crimes are conceived before they're carried out and a place where people run to hoping they've gotten away with all their schemes. And it's not what God intends it to be. It's not only that, it's everything it shouldn't be because his heart is that the nations would be there. The nations would be drawn to him, to the God of the nations with people carrying out their calling to be a light to the nations. That's the calling of Israel. So was the temple for Jews? Yes, and for Gentiles. It, and in the same vein, you know, is, is the church for Christians? Yes, and it's for non-Christians. So, you know, let's just apply this to ourselves a little bit. If you're a Christian and you asked your non-Christian friends why they don't go to church, what do you think they'd say? And, and you know, Now, you might say, that's a crazy question. Like, it's obvious. My neighbors are atheists. I've got Jewish neighbors. I've got Hindu neighbors. I've got a neighbor who, you know, talks to a crystal for 15 minutes every day before she starts whatever she's doing. Why would that person ever come to church? 
What do you mean, what, how, how can I ask them, why don't they come to church? And, you know, not only that, but if the statistics are right, most Christians don't even go to church that often. But, you know, just humor me for a second. What would they say to the question? Of course, there'd be a, a range of answers, but I suspect common to every answer would be the very thing that prevents us from inviting them to church in the first place, and that is the idea that church is for Christians. Church is the place where religious people do their religious thing, and since I'm not a religious person or I'm from a different religion, that's not something I want to do. And maybe if they were being really honest, they might even go Jeremiah 7 on us and say, I don't go to that place because the church is a dadgum robber's den. It is a hypocritical hideout, a performative piety, a gathering of people who have made it clear they want nothing to do with the likes of me. And so I will drink my coffee, and I will read my New York Times, and I'll sleep to 11. Thank you very much. Now, I'm a silverback Gen Xer. That means I was born in the early part of the Generation X era. And because of that, one of my, one of my favorite movies is The Breakfast Club. And uh, if you're familiar with that film, you'll know it's about these five high school students who are stuck in a library together for all-day Saturday detention. And, you know, other than their common punishment, they've got nothing in common. Um, one of them is kind of a stoner, juvenile delinquent. Another's this popular girl. Another's this jock wrestler. Another's this ace student kind of nerd. But there's this other kid who's a little bit harder to categorize. Um, her, her name's Allison. And she's kind of a goth looking kid. Uh, for most of the movie, she doesn't say much. She kind of lurks in the background. She dresses strange. She does all this weird stuff with her food at lunch. And when she does say anything, it's kind of bizarre. And, you know, the whole, for a good part of the movie, you're just wondering, what is this girl's deal? And everyone in the movie's wondering the same thing. And finally, you know, as they've spent a good amount of time together, there's this really tender moment where the jock wrestler kind of reaches out to her and talks to her, and he begins to ask her about her life, and he asks her about what's troubling her. And, and she gets kind of teary, but she doesn't, she can't answer him. And he, he persists, he wants to know what's wrong with her, and he asks her, is it your parents? And, you know, kind of painfully, she nods her head. And you can see him, you know, mustering up his courage to ask the next question the dreaded question. And he asks her, what did they do to you? And you're, you're watching this movie and you're going, I don't know that I want to hear what they've done to her. You know, she's been abused in some way that I don't want to hear about. But she looks him, you know, straight in the eye and she says to him, they ignore me. You, you come to find out, you, you find out that the source of her damage is that she's been ignored. And, and, you know, as the movie goes on, you actually find out she, doesn't, she wasn't even given detention. They're all talking about, you know, what got you in here and what got you in here, and then they ask her, and she goes, I just didn't have anything better to do. And, you know, and you, you get the sense it's just kind of out of this desperation for any kind of connection even if it's the dysfunctional connection of giving yourself all-day Saturday detention for a day. 
You know, you just can't overstate the immense damage we can do in the thing that we might otherwise think is nothing, doing nothing, and that's ignoring people. You know, the language of one of our confessions of sin that we use here sometimes, you know, it always catches me when we pray. Uh, it's just part of it. Almighty God, you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. And here's the kicker. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. Wrapped up in them. You know, and I think that is what lies at the heart of Jesus' outrage, that he walks into this place, and even as the machinery of religiosity is humming along very nicely, God's people are doing unbelievable damage to, by ignoring their neighbors. You know, when you kind of apply it to our current situation, it means actually that churches are called to something much greater than doing outreach. We're also called to making room. Room in the building, for sure, but, but room in our hearts, room in our homes, room in our schedules, room in our worship. You know, just more room. So, so Jesus comes, the Lord has suddenly come to his temple, again, not to do temple reform, but as the truer and greater temple reality who makes that room. You see, the concept of the temple long preceded the construction of the temple. The first place you see the Bible, the temple show up in the Bible isn't 1 Kings 5, 5 when Solomon is kind of planning, the, making the preparations for its construction. It's in Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve are put in a garden to cultivate called Eden. You know, all of creation was in Eden because after the Lord created everything, he set out this particular space to dwell with him. He planted a garden in creation called Eden. It's kind of a sanctuary where he dwelled with Adam and Eve. And that sanctuary, the intent of it at least, was that it would be cultivated and made to expand and grow out into all of the world. That's the temple reality. That's the template for the temple. And what made it a paradise wasn't fruit, wasn't tame animals, wasn't getting to walk around naked or no thorns. What made it a paradise was God's presence. Fullness of life, well-being, fruitfulness, joy, peace. Um, you know, one of the confessions says, you know, that Adam and Eve were happy and holy in God in that place. It, all of it derived from him. And of course, the tragedy is, the tragedy that touches all of creation and every human, every human being is that all that fell apart when our forebears, our mother and father, decided to build their life on something other than God, decided to stop believing in Him, decided to transfer trust from Him to something else. And that rebellion resulted in banishment from His presence so that, as John Milton put it, in Paradise Lost, they, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden, took their solitary way. Solitary. Without God. They walked away, they looked back, and they saw they were shut out of that place by a flaming sword turning every way. Now that sword represents God's perfect and holy justice. It, it, that sword means there's no way back into the presence without without that justice being executed. 
justice for sin falling on someone at the cost of their life. And look, I understand I've, I've done a quick run-through of a little biblical primal history, you know, and that that might seem strange to you, that might seem, you know, even a little mythical to you. But if you're a human, you know something about this. Uh, even if it is in some, you know, deep, dormant, unspoken place in your heart, you know, we all carry around that homesickness for a place we've never been. You know, we're all trying to get to that place because we all sense we were made for something greater, for thriving, for well-being, and we all know that, you know, in some way or other that it can't be secured with money or romance or careers or adventure or distraction or education or anything like that because many of us have gotten our hands on those things and it still doesn't satisfy. We all know, you know, we really know that this is not all there is and this is not the way it's supposed to be and in some way or another, we're trying to get into that sanctuary and we know we can't get there on our own. And, you know, you can't really understand the temple in Jerusalem without knowing all of that background and you can't understand the significance of the greater temple reality without knowing that, again, it, it existed in such a way as the writer of Hebrews describes it as a copy of the heavenly things. The temple, in other words, was never meant to be the permanent solution to getting into the presence. It was always a provisional solution to a particular people so that all the peoples could come in, could find a way back in. So, you know, even at its best, even when everything is functioning as it should in that temple reality, the only way that to get into God's presence was to go into this small shielded space in the center of the temple, you know, this place called the Holy of Holies, where once a year on Yom Kippur, you know, for a very brief time, one person would go as a representative of all the people. And, he, and he'd go in with a bloody sacrifice. Why does he do that? Because the flaming sword of God's justice has to fall on something. But here's the thing. That was always temporary, and I want to say it was always tenuous. It was so tenuous that the priest would go in with a rope tied around his waist just in case he didn't survive the experience, in case the sword fell on him. Then he could drag his body out. It was never sufficient. It was never a system that anyone was supposed to be content with. And, and if you were really, the people who understood it the most were the ones who were understanding there's got to be more and were longing for the day when the Lord suddenly shows up to his temple. And that brings us to the tree. You know, Jesus first went to the temple, but before he cleanses it, he comes across this fig tree and, and you know, he sees that it's not bearing fruit and he curses it so that it, so that it dies right down to its roots. You know, this is one of those stories where, admittedly, Jesus doesn't come off very well. Um, one commentator went so far to say that this amounts to a gross injustice on a tree, which was guilty of no wrong, and had but performed its natural function. And another one says, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. And you do have to wonder, you know, why Jesus would curse a fig tree for being fruitless when figs, as Mark takes pains to tell us, weren't even in season? Well, there is a botanical explanation to this, and I'm going to give it to you. 
You know, when Middle Eastern fig trees start to produce leaves in the spring before it's fig season, they, the fruitful ones produce these early little figs called breba that, that kind of sit right behind the new leaves. Most of them fall off without ripening, but if the early figs are there, edible figs are sure to come. But when they're not there, you've got a tree with all the signs of life, but with no hope for fruit. A tree that looks fruitful from far away, but once you get up, once you pull back a few leaves, you can see even before it's fig season, you know, fruitlessness. And actually what you're seeing in reality, you're seeing an unhealthy tree, you're seeing a diseased tree, you're seeing a dying tree. You know, we've got a couple of trees here at the church that we're, we, we're going to have to take out. And if you look at them, they look alive, don't they? But they're dead. Once again, Jesus is not having a temper tantrum. He's teaching. And he's using the tree as an illustration by cursing it. Uh, just to be clear, he's not destroying a fruitful tree. He is treating it for what it actually is. He's treating it as a fruitless diseased and dying tree, and, and that means he's only accelerating its inevitable demise. You see, the tree interprets the temple. It's an illustration of it. The temple looks good from far away, amazing architecture, packed with religious people, doing religious things. The numbers are great, but you get up close, pull back a few leaves, and you find out it's diseased, it's dying. You know, one of the most haunting letters to the churches, you know, in, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's, there's these letters to the churches in the first three chapters. And the, I think the most haunting one, you know, the one that, that, that kind of gives me the willies is the, church, is the letter to the church at Sardis, which begins with God saying this, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The tree is a picture of what a certain kind of religiosity can look like. It, there's a kind of religiosity that can look alive, but it's dead. You know, fruit trees have got one job, right? Bear fruit. Temples have one job. Churches have one job. And it's the same thing. Bear fruit. And when you, when you step back and take it all in, you realize the temple isn't merely denying life to outsiders. It's denying life to insiders, too. By fostering this delusion that, that, you know what God wants from you the most? Your duty. And, and it's important to deny others entry. So whether it's the temple then or the church today, we, we, we've got to see that the greatest danger to the church, you know, is, is this. Constructing a kind of religiosity that looks alive, that appears fruitful from far away, but when you get up close to it, there's no life. And I just want to say, I don't think it is possible to overestimate our capacity for that. <laughs> we have a great capacity for that. A great capacity for busyness to work right alongside prayerlessness. A great capacity for gathering a crowd while failing to care for one another, really care for one another. Great capacity for religiosity without relishing God's word. A great capacity for morality without mercy. A capacity for rule-keeping with no repentance. A capacity for being present in church while keeping worship peripheral. A capacity for maintaining theological orthodoxy and biblical teaching and all those good things while, 
while having no room for the skeptic or the doubting or the hurting or the non-believing. We have great capacity for having signs of life with no fruit. And, and that's why I think it's so vital not to soften Jesus' actions here. Um, you know, because Mark tells us he's teaching. And, and what is he teaching about? He's teaching us about a religiosity that hums along nicely with an outward appearance of piety and no life. And Jesus curses that. He trashes that. He wants to see that torn up from the roots. He wants to see it turned over and never rebuilt. He's teaching. And the question is, do we receive the teaching? Do we accept it? Do we hear it? It's not to say it's an easy lesson. <laughs> it's a very convicting lesson for me, for, for sure. Maybe for you too. And it certainly wasn't an easy lesson for his disciples. Mark reports they walk back by the tree to find it dead to the roots. And Peter says to Jesus, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus still teaching gives, you know, what I think is among the simplest and most profound answers as you'll find in the Bible to that situation. He says to Peter, have faith in God. Faith in God is a big deal. Faith in God is, is the very opposite of performative religiosity. Faith is a saving grace wherein we rest and receive, receive and rest on Christ alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. Uh, it, it is to know and never forget, as Jonathan Edwards puts it, that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary in the first place. And maybe the best way to read that is have faith in God. Not in yourself, not in your tradition, not in your religiosity, not in your cool building, but in Him, in Him alone. And, and from that foundation of faith in Him comes a fruitfulness that, that you almost can't imagine. The last part of the chapter in this prayer and asking God to do th these amazing things, you know, that's all grounded in faith in God. I wish I had more time to kind of get into that this morning. I got a little bit chided about it this morning. Someone said, you need to talk more about prayer. Well, you know, hopefully we can get back to that. But, you know, it, it all speaks to the fruitfulness of the Lord alone producing the things that only the Lord can do and can be attributed to no one else. This is why prayer becomes so central to the discussion because that's the nature of prayer. It is to call upon the Lord's, to attend to our hearts as only He can, to give us what only He can provide, to do what only He can do. You know, and so maybe that's kind of why we're big on prayer here. That's why we're big on our prayer meeting on, on Wednesday mornings, to just do that. You know, that, that if nothing else, a good start is to pray. If you don't know how to do that, you can pray that God will help you learn how to pray. And he'll teach you that we'd have faith in God, that we would be pressing beyond the limits of what we feel like we can reasonably accomplish on our own, you know, praying for a fruitless, fruitfulness that only God can give. And in fact, that's how Paul kind of describes regular old church life in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about the activity of the church. He says, what do we do? We plant the seed, we water, but God gives the growth. God provides the fruit. The point of fig trees is figs. The point of the church is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness and seeing grow among us that which only God can do. Seeing all kinds of people gathered to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. See, seeing people come to newness of life through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
It's really striking how the Bible talks about the gospel. You know, I'm often, as I read the Bible, I often realize how at odds it is with my, my conception of it sometimes, maybe yours. Certainly, you know, the gospel is that message one must believe to come into life in Christ, but but a huge emphasis of the Bible is, is also the message of the Christian life. Paul, Paul puts it strikingly in, to the Colossian church where he describes the gospel as the word of truth which has come to us, as indeed in the whole world it is what? Bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is not merely a gateway in, it is growth in the kingdom. It bears fruit, it increases. And, and the only way to make and maintain room for those who may not share our faith is to never get over it, to never get over this singular, astounding fact that the Lord has made room for us through Jesus Christ. That's kind of where the passage ends, with a heart enlarged for others, so that whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That is the posture, that is the prayer of the person for whom the gospel sits at the very center. Forgiven people forgive. Welcomed people welcome. Loved people love. It's it's common in our ministry circles, and it has been for some time, to talk about gospel-centered ministry, gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered prayer, and I love that language, and I believe in it, but, you know, it's been, I've kind of lately come to fear it's losing its potency due to overuse. So, you know, I want to refine it a little bit to say what we're talking about when we're talking about being gospel-centered is to be a people who are gospel-reliant and gospel-relishing. Gospel-reliant. We never get over the gospel. We rely on it. We understand that salvation comes by the way, way of the gospel, and so does sanctification. So does your growth. You want to grow in the Lord? Go back to the gospel. The, the gospel is both the way of getting into fellowship with God, and it is the way of growing in fellowship with God and with one another. And gospel relishing, you relish it. You never get over the breathtaking reality that Jesus has gained us entry into God's presence by fulfilling the law for us, by letting the sword of God's wrath for sin fall on him instead of on us, attaining for us not merely access into that place, but adoption as sons and daughters, exploring the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the good news that God himself has made a way and given a life to us, and it is wonderful in our eyes. And here's the thing about gospel-reliant, gospel-relishing fellowships is they are always making room because no truth is held in higher esteem. Nothing is more delicious to us than the reality that God has made room for us when we should have been shut out. We worship a God who, you know, if I can put it this way, has more square footage of his heart dedicated to the outsider and the rebellious, and the skeptical, and the seeking than we may have ever imagined. And of course, that is written into our own story that he gave his son, Jesus, that we might find in him a new and living way in. Have faith in God. And see that in Christ, he has swung the door wide open into the place 
that our rebellion and, I want to say, our self-reliance had shut us out of. Jesus came humbly and sinlessly and worthily to take us there, again, allowing that sword to fall on him, to fall on the sinless one for us, that we would have fellowship. And, you know, there's no better picture of this than the table where we come every week, thank God, when we're reminded every week that, you know, what gains us access to a seat at the table with Jesus is not our religiosity, it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of our Savior who saved us from our sin and from our striving. And if your faith is in Him, you know, come and eat and drink with gratitude and be nourished that you would bear much fruit. So that as someone who has Jesus at the center of your life, that you'd be a temple. That's how it talks about Christians. You're a living temple. We're all part of that. Being built up, stones in the temple, that, that through us, you know, that we'd be a doorway into the kingdom for those who are currently standing on the outside. And if your faith isn't in Jesus, don't just take this meal, not just yet, but have faith in God. Turn from all other trusts. Take the one who took the sword for you, who gained you access the one whose heart is wide open to you, that you would have life and thriving and freedom. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, I love how, you are, um, how you've come to us and you, you continue to come to us. Uh, you come to us through your word. And Lord, I love your ferocity. I love that you are determined to uproot that in us which would um, begin to imagine uh, that, uh, that our relationship with you is construed in terms of duty instead of your finished work. I love that you uproot the idea that no one is too far away, that your heart is for the lost. Um, Lord, I love that you remind us through the gospel that there is immense square footage in your heart for those who are skeptical, and curious, and indifferent, and hateful, and whatever else, Lord. Your heart is, beats for that, if we can put it that way. And so, Lord, thank you for making room for us at this table. Would you, would you expand the bounds? Would you make room for those in this city, this beautiful yet broken city, Lord, that many would come to know you and that we would grow on you, that we would be gospel-reliant and gospel-relishing as your people. Help us to begin here at this table, relying upon you and relishing the good news together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.